Hello and welcome to Maintain the Flame with Keith Collins, the program where we anticipate an experience with the Lord on each and every episode. Thank you so much for listening today, and my prayer is that you will be strengthened, encouraged, and challenged in your daily walk with the Lord as you listen. The primary purpose for this program is to be a source of inspirational truth that will not only awaken a deeper hunger within you for more of God, but also a source of encouragement when it comes to maintaining a deep passion for the Lord. Leviticus 6.12 says, The fire on the altar must be kept burning. It must not go out. This Old Testament verse spoke into the sacrificial burnt offering practices of the temple, and it reflects the fact that we as the bride of Christ are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we have a responsibility to steward our walk with God and to maintain His flame that He has ignited in our hearts. I am your host, Keith Collins, and I invite you to join me now as we explore biblical truths that help us to maintain the flame of God upon the altar of our hearts. Worldviews that have deep-seated roots in our thought patterns and the way that we view life and the way that we view the human race and the way that we view religion, the arts, um, education, politics, on and on and on. And these worldviews really shape who people are. They, they shape the way that we function, the way that we process. That's why it is vital that we, as followers of Jesus, have a clear understanding of what a biblical worldview is. And not just know it here intellectually, but how do we walk out that worldview, primarily to influence the world that we're in for Jesus Christ. So, um, so these, are, these are really big, big issues right now. And this is, um, this is the right time, I believe, to do this. And you know, some people have been sounding an alarm. You'll recognize names like probably Josh McDowell, um, Ravi Zacharias, who went to be with the Lord recently, um, some folks like James Dobson, Mike, Dr. Michael Brown, he's a good friend of mine. There have been these voices that have been sounding alarms for decades. Look out, beware, this is happening. And we're coming into a dangerous season of, of culture and society. And I believe right now we're kind of at the tipping point in America. We're at the tipping point in many nations of the world. And um, so I believe that this subject matter is so, so important right now. So let me, before I get into my PowerPoint presentation and really just beginning to go through some different concepts um, to kind of help us understand a biblical worldview, and then the last half of the day or the morning, um, I'm going to go really deep into postmodern thought and how that really has, continues, and will continue to impact the society that we live in. Um, so, but before I go into that, I wanted to just ask a few questions, and I can get some feedback from you, or if I could, that would be good. You know, we, we found, and Mike gave an, a staggering statistic, and I believe it could even be lower now, but um, nine, is that a Gallup poll you were quoting? Yeah, Gallup, I've seen the poll, and I, I think there's a Pew poll as well, but, but Gallup, states that um, 9% or less people in Christianity have a true biblical worldview. It doesn't mean they're not in church. It doesn't mean they're not saved. It doesn't mean they're not coming to functions and you know, church activities, but it means that they do not have a biblical worldview. Now, listen, when I first heard 
that statistic as an educator in a ministry Bible college type setting, that was somewhat staggering to me probably 15, 16 years ago. So what I did is I began to deliberately question the students that were coming into our Bible college ministry school setting. And, you know, a lot of these young people, they weren't all very young, but a lot of these young people, um, you know, were between 18 to 25. Some were 30s, 40s. I've, I've taught people in their 60s, and I've taught a double PhD in his 70s. I've, we've had a NASA scientist in our classes before. So we, we've taught all kind of people. Um, but primarily, most of them were between the ages of, I would say, 18 to 25, 28 or so, some a little older. And I wanted to see if this was true. So we began to begin the class that I'm doing now in a much you know, consolidated form here today with this biblical worldview test. And we would hand this out, and they would all fill the, fill the answers out. And the next week, I would come back, and I would say, hey, guess what? And usually it was around 11, 12% of you have a biblical worldview. The rest of you do not. It doesn't mean you're not filled with the Spirit. It doesn't mean you don't um, study the Bible. It doesn't mean you don't memorize Scripture. But it basically means you do not have a biblical worldview. So um, let me just give you a few. I'm not going to give you all of them because we would give them like 50 questions. But let me give you, you know, eight or ten questions here and kind of show you what we would ask them. So we would ask them things like, absolute truth exists. These are all true and false. True or false? You can answer that if you want to. Absolute truth exists. All right. Any false? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> there is only one way to heaven. We believe that. Can I tell you that um, there are a lot of people, even in evangelical, Protestant, even charismatic Pentecostal churches that do not believe that. They believe it, it is a way to heaven for sure, but they also believe if God is a loving God, how could he send anyone to hell that's never even heard the gospel that's in, you know, pantheism or, you know, or Eastern type religion where, you know, they're into spiritualism or ancestral worship and they're born and it's all they know. So if God is a loving God, then how could he send somebody like that to hell, Right. So, in other words, I'm trying to just get you to think the way that a lot of the world, a lot of the church world thinks today. Um, the Bible is a book of true history, true or false. Very good. Um, abortion can be acceptable in some circumstances. Okay? And, of course, we... We believe that, you know, since the Bible makes it clear that, that life begins at, at fertilization or conception, that um, any abortion is an act of murder or homicide, a clear sin. And we see this in Psalm 51, Luke 1, other places, and many other places. But, you know, but there are surely tragic situations, rape, incest, these type of things. Um, I, I remember whenever my, my youngest daughter, who some of you are aware that we have a special needs grandchild, who has a very rare, what they call terminal form of dwarfism, um, rhizomelic chondrodysplasia punctata. And um, most of these kids die before they're two weeks old. Most of them die immediately out of utero. And um, he's six years old now, a little over six. But there was such a pressure put on my daughter from the medical field, the medical world, to abort this baby because it was not humane 
to bring forth a child into this world that has such grave medical challenges. So the rationale could, could seem to be very logical to someone with an unbiblical worldview, right? In other words, it's humane. It's, it's how, how, um, you know, how ridiculous is it to bring in a child that's not going to be able to run and walk and play and you know, feed itself? You understand, this is, this is why you know, it's important for us to understand where we are in culture. So we acknowledge that all life is precious, all life is created in the, in the image of God, all, all human life. And, um, and that's a, a strong thing that we believe in. Some humans evolved from ape or ancient ape-like creatures. Neanderthals with long arms, and right? You will be shocked at how many Christian young people believe this. And a lot of it's due to education, due to not wanting to be ashamed of their belief system, so they morph into by osmosis, they morph into the the thought patterns of the world around them. So again, um, you know, to us, you know, again, I'm 52 and um, been preaching for 34 years and, you know, have studied and all that, but, you know, understanding also that there are a lot of people, a lot of young people that are being just bombarded with thought patterns, with teaching, with ideologies, with philosophies that literally war against any foundational biblical worldview in their lives. So, so we definitely know that we were created in the image of God, right? So the God of the Old Testament is harsh, while the God of the New Testament is loving, true or false. Huh? So again, these are, these are thoughts that a lot of people deal with. Um, so of course we believe that's false. Listen, we believe there's been no change in the character of God ever, right? Malachi 3, 6, James 1, 17. Um, you know, this is a common misrepresentation of a soft Jesus and a harsh father. Understanding the roles within the Trinity and reading the many rebuking words from Jesus, the one who will be the coming judge, will correct this misunderstanding. God has always been both merciful and just. Let me give you a paradigm. I believe that whenever we even see the judgment of God enacted on His own people in the Old Testament, the Jewish people, Israel, I believe it's an act of mercy. Why do I say? God would literally anoint ungodly kings to execute judgment against His own people who had fallen into idolatry, paganism. Um, you know, they were following the the practices of the heathen pagan nations surrounding them, and God would execute judgment against them in order to bring them back to right relationship with Him. So when you have a true biblical worldview, you realize that sometimes even judgment is an act of God's mercy because it brings humanity back to the fear of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, right? Let me give you a picture that we see right now. Um, we know that there are deliberate stories that um, present the judgment of God. We can see that in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Very plain. That God literally rains down sulfur and, I mean, literally destroys the entire city there, um, the, entire, the entire area there. We can also see in the New Testament when Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Lord, to Peter, but to the Lord, 
and about giving a piece of land to the church, and they literally fell dead. So those are demonstrative displays of judgment, and they're, they're, they're challenging, right? And I'll tell you why they're challenging, because oftentimes, and this has everything to do with a biblical worldview, we view God in our image instead of realizing that we're created in His image. So in other words, we want to bring God down to who we are instead of us being transformed into who He is. So let me give you a picture of judgment right now. I believe that there's another form of judgment that we're seeing enacted upon the earth even now. That listen, when humanity is so given over to sin, to unbridled lawlessness, to debauchery, to abortion, even to the place of you know extracting a baby, every part except the head, in the ninth month of gestation and murdering. I mean, just, and again, we don't have to go through all the details, but you understand that's the culture that we live in. I mean, we are literally sacrificing hundreds and hundreds of babies every week in our nation, whether it be in the first, second, or third trimester. In other words, when, when a nation continues to go down that path without any qualms or any conscience, and again, I know the church is still here, and many people are disturbed by this, but by and large, I mean, there are major leading figures in our country, whether they be political or business or entertainment, that a part of their platform and worldview has to do with this subject of abortion. And now we've entered into not just the acceptance, not just being tolerant towards um, changing God's um, definition of marriage to where now you know, we accept gay marriage. Beyond that, we also embrace, not we, but a lot of America is embracing polyamory. Polyamory basically means that if there's three men that are in love, then the three men can get married. Or maybe there's three men and four women, and they're all seven in love. If they're in love, then why can't they get married and form a union? Or, and this is crazy, but this is literally where things are going. There's some things in Massachusetts right now that there's a, a person with a dog and two women, and the four of them want to get married in a union. So I'm just telling you that when you begin to break down a biblical worldview and culture and society, things just go awry. And, and so, so here's what happens. Sin, perversion, these things are not just permitted, but they're promoted and then they're celebrated and then they're legislated. And that's where we're at. So here's the thing. You can spit in the face of God for long enough and eventually He just turns humanity over to their own sin. And it's a form of judgment. And oftentimes it'll be enacted through violence in our cities. It'll be enacted through divisions in our political world. It'll be enacted through strife within families. Because humanity has ran so far away from God. And forgive me, I don't want to sound critical, but and the church has been such cowards over the decades of dealing with these issues, and we've allowed the spirit of this age just to come in and just take over in so many sectors of our society, the mountains of culture, that, that now we find ourselves allowing things to happen and take place that my grandparents, and I'm 52, so my grandparents would have blushed at even hearing the things that are now celebrated, and now they are promoted in the halls of Congress and all over the world. So that's, that's the hour that we live in. So, so this is a 
a vital, vital time that, that we find ourselves in. And that's why um, you know, we'll go through quite a bit of information today dealing with a biblical worldview. So let me just give, give you a few more questions and then we'll get into our slideshow, slideshow presentation. People in the Old Testament times were saved from their sins by sacrificing animals and doing good works. True or false? Any true? People in the, let me read, people in the Old Testament times were saved from their sins by sacrificing and doing good works. Anybody with true in here? Because Pastor Bud has a biblical worldview, you guys are all intimidated. <laughs> and he is correct. It is, it is false. I've heard a lot of people think, how, how were people in the Old Testament, quote, what we call saved? In other words, we, call, you know, we use this terminology now. How was a person in the Old Testament considered what we would call saved or you know, in right relationship with God? Anybody know that? It wasn't through the, the shedding of, of blood. Of course, that was required. Let me, let me read you my answer here. Um, the sacrificial system was never established to provide forgiveness of sins, but to cover over sins. And we can see this in Hebrews chapter 10 very clearly. Until the perfect lamb would come to be the final offering to take away the sins of the world. No one has ever been saved from his sins by his own good works. Of course, Paul deals with this in Ephesians as well. Ephesians chapter 2, I think 7, 8, or 9, around there. Um, and again, Romans, he deals with it as well. Romans deals a lot with this, 2, chapter 3. Um, but listen, those in the Old Testament were looking forward to a Savior, a Messiah, a Messianic figure, who would come and remove their sins. Today we look back to the Savior that has already died for our sins. In either sense, sins are forgiven through the work of Christ on the cross and sealed by His resurrection and ascension to the right hand of the Father. So this my friend, is so foundational to a biblical worldview. And you will be surprised at how many people lose these basic tenets of faith and therefore they're able to be pulled into one dynamic or another and lose what it means to have a biblical worldview. Just a couple of more. Um, science can prove that the Bible is true. True or false? Science can prove the Bible is true. True or false? Well, I don't want to. I'm going to say it's false, and here's why, I'm, here's why I say it's false. If an outside evidence could prove the Bible were true, that evidence would be, greater, would be a greater standard than the Bible itself. That idea is rejected since the Bible is the very Word of God. The Bible must always be the ultimate standard. We might say that evidences confirm or support the truths of the Bible, but they cannot prove the Bible, and this is a, a primary, primary foundational stone in a biblical worldview. And listen, if we lose this, and, and when some of you might have been um, in Fairmont when Dr. Jay Grimstead was there, um, and I don't have time to go into a lot of this, but I know quite a bit about it. Um, in the really the late 50s, early 1960s, um, neo-orthodoxy or liberal theology began to gain headway in a lot of our evangelical seminaries. And, um, you know, seminaries that traditionally had been rock solid. I mean, mo a lot of them were cessationist, and many of them were even Calvinistic. But as far as foundational truths, 
the virgin birth of Christ, the deity of Christ, you know, the inerrancy of Scripture, the canonization of Scripture, um, you know, those type of these were foundational truths. Now there could have been differences eschatologically as far as you know, pre, mid, trib, amillennialism, all these kind of things. There there might have been difference as far as does the baptism of the Holy Spirit take place at salvation or is it a subsequent subsequent work to salvation? These these types of things could have been in question. However, by and large, seminaries, Baptist, Presbyterian, um, you know, Methodist, these seminaries had basic tenets of the faith that really connected them in the sense that they embraced an inerrancy of Scripture. Um, around this time, and again, we'll see why when I get into some of this teaching today, later this morning, around this time, um, you know, people began to assert certain things like, well, can we really accept the Bible as authentic and inerrant? And thought patterns like deconstructionism, we'll talk about this more, but deconstructionism connects with postmodernism, and deconstructionism basically says you really can't trust language. In other words, you know, there are multiple languages, and how can we put confidence in black letters on white paper that humanity has written, even if they say they were inspired by God, the, the original, you know, the original writings that, you know, Moses, these even the New Testament authors, they were called autographs, right? And then anything after that were transcribed, we call them scribes, and those were called manuscripts. And so there, you know, there are some manuscripts that we found even as recently as, um, you know, not a few decades ago, whenever they found the um, parts of, of Isaiah and stuff like this in Israel. So uh, there's been things found, but there are clear um, manuscripts that are still available that are, that are very ancient. However, if you embrace the thought that you really can't trust the Word of God and the human writers of the Word of God, and you definitely can't trust scribes, right? Because they're just men that copied from the manuscripts on parchment through the years, then how can we embrace the inerrancy of Scripture? And maybe we'll come back and do an entire 10-hour class on the canonization of Scripture because it would take that or more time because you know there are so many solid proofs. And again, the Bible stands on its own, but, but I'll, I'll assert this. There are extra-biblical, even ancient writings that even predate the Bible that prove, or that, I'll say it this way, they lend proof text to the fact that the Word of God is rock-solid, infallible, inerrant. And again, um, there's a lot of study that can go into this, whether it be ancient language studies, whether it be um, you know, the way that the Bible's been preserved, whether it be the, the Nicene Council, some of these you know, times when scholars came together and agreed which books should be canonized, how the, um, the Septuagint, was brought up. In other words, there's a lot here, and I understand that. At the end of the day, if I can say it that way, um, I know that I know that I know that I know that there is no way that this Bible, in its canonized current form, even in the English language, the German language, the Hispanic language, whatever, there is no way that this could have gotten to us any other way except by a miracle from God. And the, the, 
the concurrency of it, the congruency of it, the, the historical proofs, the, um, the spiritual proofs, the fact that, that this Bible has stood the test of time, that even, even though Nietzsche said that there will come a day when God will be dead on the face of the earth, even though John Lennon, one of the former Beatles, said that we are now more popular than Jesus Christ. He said that. Um, even though we have had thought patterns that have attempted to assert the Word of God and even to annihilate the existence of God, um, by the grace of God, we're here this morning because of this truth. I, I love the story of Billy Graham when he said that when he was in Florida and... Um, and that he was preparing for ministry in a small Bible school down in Florida, in the Tampa area, as a very young man, knew that he was called to ministry. This neo-orthodoxy, liberal theology began to become a theme. That was the time that Graham was preparing for ministry. And some of his friends, even if I remember the story right, were beginning to question, is the Bible really the inerrant, infallible Word of God, or should we begin to question the Bible? And he said he went out one night to pray. And he took his Bible. And he said there was a stump where a tree had been cut down. And he laid that Bible on the stump. And he got on his knees. And he said, Lord, I make a decision. I don't understand everything about it. I can't give you all the dates, the facts, the figures. He was a young man at the time. But he said, Lord, I know that your word is true. And I choose to believe your words. Now, with saying that, I want to say that, and this is what makes us different, right? I love what John Wesley, who was a colossal intellect. Wesley, of course, an Anglican, then became a Methodist. I believe Wesley ushered in probably one of the greatest, maybe, maybe the greatest since the Apostle Paul and that group, maybe the greatest evangelical movement on the face of the earth at one time. I mean, these guys were firebrands, full of passion, soul winners, full of the fire of God. But, um, but I love what John Wesley said. He said, a man with an argument is never at the mercy of a man with an experience. And we have to understand, in our understanding of a worldview, the thing that separates us. Now listen, I personally believe, because again, you know, there are some that, that God uses them in a more academia or um, scholastic type way. They are... They're kind of given to this, and I believe these people are, are needed. At the same time, I don't believe we can separate an experience with God from our academia or from our biblical scholarship, whatever level that is. And, you know, we can have an experience with God. In other words, no man can talk me out of what happened to me on January the 24th of 1985. That's my greatest foundation, Pastor Bud, for my biblical worldview. Now, I've spent years of studying. You know, I've got a graduate degree in theology and stuff, so I've spent a lot of time even away from an official collegiate type um, atmosphere, studying, studying, studying. And I literally, the way I study a lot of times is I try to prove myself wrong. That might not be good for everybody, but literally I've, I've taken, um, you know, secular literature trying to prove the Bible wrong. I can't do it. It is so powerful. It is so profound. It is so solid. It is so inerrant. It is so impossible for humans to come together and to form, to articulate, to, to set in sequence something like what we have and what we know as the Bible or the Word of God. So, um, so everything that we need, and you know, 
My, my last true false question was always, the Bible has guidance for every situation that, a, that an individual might face. And of course, I know we would all resoundedly say that that is true. So with that said, um, we enter this teaching today um, you know, with this foundation and with this understanding that, that the Word of God is altogether true. It is foundational. There is no shadow of turning in it. It does not change. It's not like you know, I'm, I'm a constitutionalist in a way that I believe kind of like the Antonin Scalia's of our generation. I believe that we should embrace it as, in its original text and apply it to the world. Not that we should change it with our changes. See, I believe mean, the Bible is the same way. The Word of God is, is true. It's, it's inerrant. It's powerful. It's sharper than a two-edged sword, the Bible says. Um, and I don't believe that we morph the Bible into our cultural dynamics or into our intellectualism, but I believe that we have to be morphed into the Word of God in everything that we are, everything that we do. And when that begins to break down, then we begin to lose culture and society very rapidly. So, Thank you so much for listening to Maintain the Flame with Keith Collins today. I trust that you've been blessed and encouraged as you've listened. And if you hunger for a greater passion for the Lord that will not dim or subside, then let me encourage you to listen weekly to episodes that will encourage you in your walk with God. To learn more about our ministry, you can visit us at keith-collins.org or impactgf.org. May the fire of God burn brighter and hotter in your life. God bless you.